Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? This is your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And guess what, folks? We've got a special guest today. Man, I'm telling you, this gentleman has done a lot of things in the tennis world, and we are extremely excited to have a conversation with him. And definitely during this time where hopefully folks are clamoring for some content, let me tell you, this will be the one that you want to listen to. Bryce, What's up, man? Let's let's talk about our guest here, man. What you got for me? Well, I am very excited to introduce to our audience, Mr. Craig Shapiro. Now, before I I bring him on and 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 let him loose on the mic, I, I just want to give you guys just a little bit of his background, right? So, Craig is the founder and the host of Under Review Tennis Podcast. So, it is a podcast that focuses on doing what he calls evergreen podcast, so we'll, we'll hopefully have him talk about that a little bit today. Um, but probably what will be very interesting to you is that for a couple of years in the late 90s, Craig was a racket technician for Andre Agassi. So he traveled the world with Agassi, taking care of his rackets. I definitely want to hear a little bit more about that. You listeners know that Isaac and I are already big Agassi fans, so uh, this is going to be really, really good. Um, but Craig has done so much more than that. Uh, Craig has worked with HBO Sports. He's worked with um, the USA Network when they had the US Open. He's worked with the Tennis Channel. I think he's responsible for doing both of the documentaries on Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. So uh, if there is a person Person that embodies uh, being really involved in the sport without having to be the player on the court, uh, I think Craig fits that role really well. So with all that being said, Craig, say hi. Welcome. <laughs> Yo, what's happening, fellas? Uh, thank you for, um, you know, letting me get on the microphone with you guys. Oh, man, it's our pleasure, my man. So good to talk to you today. Man, uh, first of all, Craig, just, you know, we are so interested in you. We've, we've come to really enjoy your podcast series. I mean, just listening to all of the people that you've interacted with has just been simply incredible. So I just, you know, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about your in, initial background of how you got to this point as far as, you know, some of the things that you went through going, you know, through the tennis, you know, I guess, uh, uh, structure uh, to get to this point in your career where you've got a, an extremely successful podcast? Well, um, we hope, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction. Um, it seems like the show is very good and, you know, getting the word out is tougher than doing the show, at least from my perspective, I feel like. I feel like we could I feel like we could get the interviews we could do good compelling interviews um and you know getting the word out is 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 the challenge um but you know I'm grateful we we're into our 65th episode we just dropped it today uh Greg Ruzenski former world number four former Canadian now Englishman he's a broadcaster but to answer your question my father loved tennis. My dad, you know, we grew up in Rhode Island. Uh, my father is from Connecticut. My mother is from Queens. And my dad just, you know, you know, he just knew that, you know, you know, I actually have a picture of Arthur Ashe in my room um, that 
I got signed in Newport, Rhode Island when I was, you know, a little kid. My dad loved Arthur Rash. My dad loved Bjorn Borg. You know, he just, you know, he just knew that that tennis was going to become the hottest thing. And he ran a trip to the U.S. Open every Labor Day weekend for almost my whole life. So, I, I mean, I'm, I told you guys when we first talked, I'm, I'm 48. I think I might have been to like... I don't know, like 38, 39, 40 U.S. Opens. <laughs> and, you wow. know, I've been to, I, I didn't miss very many. No, no. And uh, I was just a just a okay player. I played like three on my high school team. Um, I probably could have done better, but I lost match. I lost, I, you know, I probably lose more matches than I win. Um, <laughs> but I got clean strokes and uh, – you know, we just love tennis. So when I when I finished college, I I got a job teaching tennis at the New York Health and Racquet Club at the corner of Wall Street and South Street. I tried to work on Wall Street. I I went to work for a, a you know some stockbroker joint, and I I hated it. Um, and one day I answered an ad. On an ad came across of the fax machine at the tennis club from uh, from a, a company that was called Jay's Custom Stringy, and I knew about these guys. They were the premier racket stringers and technicians there was. And I came to learn that I basically like buzzed up to the up to them and did I had an interview and I got the job. Like I was the first person that answered the ad and I got the job. And they must have been blown away that I knew who they were. And uh, at that time, this guy Jay Schweid was this—you know—he was a guy. You know, he was a guy from Queens. He loved tennis, and he was kind of quirky and, and uh, like a tech guy. You know what I mean? Like he was like—he mm-hmm. kind of had like a techie sort of vibe to him. And he basically, you know put the tennis rackets on a scale and learned that they no two rackets were the same. And he learned that players that were, that played with a Prince racket, if they got a deal with Wilson, well, guess what? The dimensions of the handle are different, right? The, the dimensions of a handle of a head racket to a Prince racket, to a Wilson, they're all different to vocal, you know, whatever it may be. And he basically conceptualized a, stringing pattern that he claimed was better than other stringing patterns where you tied off the strings on the sides but i got the job basically he he and at that time it was probably like man it was like 1997 i guess at earlier on andre had had a problem with his rackets and jay came to the rescue and he got a deal done with Andre where someone from Jay's custom stringing would travel with Andre wherever he went. And after about six months of like learning how to do the work, they put me in and uh, I spent like maybe, man, I, I have to look at it, but I think it could have been 20 months you know, I didn't do it for, I don't think I even did it for two full years, but I spent like a, 
I mean, listen, we went to Australia. We went to Monte Carlo, Munich, D.C., L.A., um, Indianapolis, you know, uh, Miami, uh, Stuttgart, Hanover. So, yeah, man, like I know, I know, you know, so I kept, so I did that. And, and along with that, you know, these guys would set up on site at the big tournaments and string all their clients' rackets. So we would be in Key Biscayne during the Miami tournament, like hunkered down in a house we rented and just stringing rackets from the morning to the night until, you know, players started losing and they would buzz out of there. And then, you know, it, things would loosen up. But, yeah, I kept those relationships together. And I think in the, in August of 1998, I quit. <laughs> I quit in Cincinnati. And I and maybe at the end of September, October, I got a job at HBO Sports. So, in, Craig, I, I, no, let, let me interrupt you for a second. So, sure. I have a question before we transition out of the racket technician phase. Yeah, for sure. So, I, I guess I kind of get what your day is like when you're at a tournament. So, since you were on the road with Andre for 20 months, what was a typical day like if it was just... I mean, if if he was just practicing, were you not needed? Were you, no, I no, mean, string the rackets, string the rackets, string the rackets on um, day of in the morning. So, like, if Andre, he would tell you sometimes he'd say, "All right, I just just give me one at sixty four, give me one at sixty two, you know, give me one at fifty eight. No, I don't want to go that. I don't ever want to go that loose because quite often you get to the tournament." And he was trying to dial in his tension. So he might not need a bunch of rackets, but he would need like one or two. Uh And then on match day, it was one per set. So give him three. Um, And then in the slams, you give him five. I think that's what it was. I I can't totally remember, but someone will will hear this and they'll check me. Some of these (laughs) will check me, but I think it was one per set. But yeah, other than that, man, other than that, it was pretty loosey goosey. the The problem was was the the boss, you know, was back in New York, like, you know, wrecking everyone's life. So, so you know, he so he made he made it um, he made it less uh, romantic, I guess you might say. But I did amazing stuff, you know. I mean, I'll, I mean, you can't, you know, you're twenty. I think I was twenty three, twenty four. Um, you know, I had zero chance of being any kind of a pro anything. It seemed like I didn't know there was such a thing as like TV producers and stuff. You know, I didn't have any kind of feel for that. So to right. have been able to pop up, you know, I mean, I went to Wimbledon. I went to the French Open. I was taking player transportation. I have um, I have credentials that say Coach Agassi and <laughs> You know, one of those years I'd gotten myself in really, really good shape. And that's the other thing. You know, you're around these athletes all the time. You're just working out all the time. And in Monte Carlo, the 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 credentials people gave me a player badge. So I got a Jewair badge. They thought I was a player, you know. So I, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if. I don't know how corny I sound right now, but no, like, that, that, that sort of awesome. that sort of brings like a smile to your face though when 
you know, you see your buddies at the at the players lounge and they're like, Well, they gave you a player badge, man. I was like, Yeah, yeah. I was like, play on player. <laughs> because because you know what? I would tell yeah, you we just, from, sorry. I would just tell you from my perspective, if you told me you were a racket technician that traveled a couple of years with Andre Agassi, to me, that sounds very glamorous. Right. You know, um, you yeah, know, I, mean, I was top. making like four, I was making like 500 bucks a week. Um, you know, I, I, uh, and I take it you had no expenses. I don't remember, man, but I, I don't remember <laughs> thinking like, how can I finesse a, a cooler thing? <laughs> you know, I was, uh, yeah, for sure. But listen. I, the guys that do that work, they still do it, man. And I, I liken them to the, the blacksmiths that made the swords for the gladiators. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? No, I do. I really do. I feel like there are these craftsmen that, that are doing very important work. And and to be honest, I think they should get paid a lot more. You know, the players should pay them a lot because, you know. They're in charge of the weapon. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and but Greg, but um, sorry, but uh, it wasn't for me. I hated, like, I wanted to be out into, you know, one of the things that was like just tore me up was when we were at, like, say, the French Open, all the players would come in all dressed up, ready to go out to dinner, and they would drop off the rackets. So I'd be in Paris on a Saturday night. <laughs> stringing rackets till the break of dawn and I was like oh man no shot I'm zero, I was like I'm zero on this man like really I was just I was just not I just was not gonna do that for long but I I I, I, I hung with it um, and I was able to I met, I knew all the agents because that's how it works is what happens is the players get to a certain level. And when the player gets to a certain level, they get a certain, they, the, the agent generally speaking puts them on the program. So it's like, okay, these guys do your rackets. This is how you, this is where you go to train. This is where you go to train in Europe. This is, you know, this is where you go for, uh, knee surgery, whatever it is, it's like you get put onto, you get taught away. A player gets taught away, and 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 you know, I was able to kind of learn some of those um, machinations, as they say. So I I met all the, I knew all the agents, I knew a lot of the players, I knew a lot of the coaches, and I kept those relationships somewhat together. Um. And you know how, I, for the most part, you know, you know how guys are, I guess, maybe like you just, you might not see someone for 20 years, but they still remember you like it was yesterday. So it's like, I run into Tim Henman, I run into Alex, when I started the podcast, I'd see these guys from time to time. And, and even before the podcast, I'd see these guys and you know, you say hello, you say, hey, you remember me? It's like, oh, yeah, of course, man, da-da-da-da. And, and that's kind of how, how it's been. 
And that's a huge advantage for you creating a podcast because you already are connected to the key sources and see a, like a podcast like we are, yeah. you know, we're just now kind of developing a lot of those relationships very organically. Right. Uh, so we think, you know, that's a huge advantage, you know, you had. Listen, man. And, you know, the other thing is too, is I went from there into television, right? So I, I, um, I've been fortunate. I did, I, I, as you mentioned in the open, I, I, I worked in tennis at, in television periodically, you know, I'd worked for the USA network and for CBS in the live broadcast of the U S open. Um, I got hired to, excuse me, do stories for, USA Network in advance of the U.S. Open. Um, when the Tennis Channel came on the scene around 2006, I actually was commissioned to do documentaries on Andre and Pete. And, you know, they got control of the French Open in 2007. I went to the French Open then. And, you know, I, I wasn't really able to find a, a good lane in television in tennis television uh. I hated being in the live TV truck um, I, I I really didn't have a good lane and I wasn't able to really just kind of you know make the money I, I, I wanted to make and I wasn't able to just fold in and be myself the way I wanted to. So I backed way out of it. And from time to time, something would pop up. I think in like 2000 and I don't know, 16 or 17. I actually, yeah, I think maybe 2017, I did a story on uh, Coco Vandaway for the tennis channel. Um, she she actually was eight in the world and she was going into the Australian Open. Maybe it was 2018. I'm not sure. You have to check it. But I would get like a little... I I always say I've been like seduced and abandoned by the tennis channel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, like I would get something and they'd be like, oh, yo, we got to do... We got to do 100 of these. And then, you know, it just would never pop. It would never come back. So anyway... Um, my friend uh, Scott Tuft uh, is a tennis fan, and he in in August two thousand, you know, in probably like June, July two thousand eighteen, he said, you know, we should do a tennis podcast, and you should host it. And I said, yeah, but I'm kind of a behind the camera guy. I don't really, I don't do that, and. It's a long story, but I basically am a contributor to a very cool magazine called Racket Magazine, which is like a, it's a piece of artwork. I, I, I describe it as the coolest thing in tennis, and um, I'm a contributor and a friend, and um, I wrote a story for them for their sixth edition, but I took like I took a long time to write it, and that really... And I was really proud of proud of that, you know. I just like it was great. Like I, I pitched it. The editor who has a, his name is Dave Shaftel. He has a very he's a he's a real deal journalist. He 
he he he bought it right i got paid i went to italy and to paris to 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 do the interview for my stories and it's like you know 3500 word story about a gentleman named martin mulligan who was three in the world in 1967 he was the only player to have match point on rod laver the year rod laver won the grand slam he had match point on him in the quarterfinals of the french open he lost to laver at wimbledon but the thing that's wild is there's two things that's wild the first is he was australian but he was getting screwed by the Davis Cup captain, Harry Hotman, the famous Harry Hotman, wouldn't put him on the team. So Italian, the, the greatest player in Italy, Nicola Pietrangeli, said, listen, Martin, just move to Italy. You can play for us. And he did it. And he became an Italian hero. He won the Italian Open three times. They called him Martino Mulligano. Oh, um, okay. yeah, it's a, it's a banana story, but the other, and then, and then at the end of his career, he became, he basically, he put Borg and Vilas in Diodora's shoes. He was like a consultant for Diodora and this Italian underwear company from a place called Biella had come up with this shirt that had no seam. And they wanted to get into tennis, and they were fila, and from oh. and from and from the first day till today, he is the only head of pro, the pro player program for fila. His name is Martin Mulligan. He's I think he's eighty four years old. I just saw him in Indian Wells. Um, wow! And That's it's just a bad to the bone story, but like it got me. It got me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I and then I pitched another story and I had some interviews to do for the other story. So I said to my friend, I said, all right, man, let's let's record these interviews and see if there's a see if there's something there. And I interviewed Jeff Tarango first and it was great. And then I called Brad Gilbert and we rocked the mic. And I, rolled out, <laughs> and I rolled out the Brad Gilbert episode first. And it was, I don't want to call it a smash hit because it's not a smash hit, but it was very well received. And from then on, it was like being on like a, you know, what do they call it? Like the wheel, the mouse goes around, like the, mm -hmm. the, the yeah, you just can't stop. You got to just keep, you just got to keep rocking episodes. So yeah. since then we went, trying to think we went brad gilbert jeff tarango nicholas Pereira, who is a broadcaster on uh tennis channel. tennis channel now but he's uh he was a great player um his episode i love his episode and then you know the serena osaka incident happened i put uh, a, a woman who's a, a close friend her and her husband ashley harkle road on and she and, and the reason I put Ashley on was because first of all she'd played Venus and Serena she kind of came up with them and she and 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 Ashley's agent was Jill Smoller who's Serena's agent and okay. I was trying to kind of you know make a timely episode but 
generally, and then we did Ashley, then we did Tommy Haas, then we did Ashley's husband, Chuck Adams, who was 30 in the world. And then we just went, then we went to London. We interviewed Tim Henman, Prakash Amitraj, Robbie Koenig. Uh, It just went on, you know, we just kept, we just kept going and going and going and going and going. So, Craig, I have a question for you. Um, now, are all of your interviews done in person? Um, I try to. Um, obviously, generally speaking, generally speaking, the answer is yes. But um, we've made exceptions. Uh, I'm trying to think. I made exceptions like three, four, five times. Um, now, in in light of what's happened, uh, we're I'm doing I'm keeping the I'm just keeping the show popping, and we're doing remote interviews, mm-hmm. like we're doing like like we're doing now. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. But generally speaking, my experience is the interview is better in person, and generally speaking, right. my experience is the 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 listener likes it when I say, "Okay, man, we're sitting." in the basement of the O2 <laughs> in a closet with, <laughs> with, with, with former world number one, James, you know, James Spencer Curry, you know, or, or I'm sitting in the green room of, or the locker room of the New York Islanders at the Nassau Coliseum with Nick Boletari, you know, and Nick's like, yeah, how are you doing? Da, da, da. <laughs> I mean, people like that, but, I'll, listen, if I got to make the call, we do it over the phone, and that's how it's got to be. Now, one of the things that, you know, we've been looking at with our podcast is going through the whole media accreditation process and, you know, hoping to get into the media rooms and all that. Uh, do you follow a similar process, or do you kind of rely on your contacts that you already have uh, kind of developed over the years? Man, I... I, try, I... <laughs> I, I, it's just, it's, generally speaking, we've been extremely fortunate to be given media credentials. Um, mm-hmm. But the media credential for me is a blessing and a curse because once you have a media credential on, you got to play by the media you got to play by the media rules and 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 you know for my purposes i'm not going to i I, we tried to request player access at the tournaments and it's not really possible for the length of time that i need for my shows so so i tried to be nimble and, and talk to other broadcasters, former players. Like I was at the Australian Open the second week. I interviewed Lindsay Davenport and Henri Lacan. For me, that's money in the bank. And then I was there on the ground, you know, saying hello to people, having some meetings and trying to, you know, try to put some money in the bank, right? So, you know, the whole, <laughs> so the whole thing is, is that, like I don't, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not writing for the New York Times or the stand, you know, for the 
uh, LA, you know, I'm not writing for, I'm not, I'm not a journalist in, in that sense. So I don't need to be in the press conferences taking notes. I just want to be on the grounds and I want to be able to be nimble. So if I run into Peter Corda, I could say, Hey man, it's great to see you. The last time I saw you, I think I strung your rackets to when you won the Australian open you know, I love the way your kid plays. Let's sit down in the grass over here and do a do a podcast or give me your number. So whoa, it doesn't whoa. matter if I have a grounds pass or a, I, the media credential is useful because, first of all, you get into you get into the facility for free. And it legitimizes you as a product. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but um you know, but that's it, man. I, 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 that's how I, that's how I, that's how I do it. So, so Craig, I, I, I keyed in on something that you said earlier about your podcast and, you know, you were kind of in the background and you didn't know if, you know, that, that it would be something that you want to pop off on. And I, I'm just very curious to that because having listened to your podcast, I mean, dude, you are bold. I mean, you get out there and you, 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 you mix it up with them. And I really love the way that you interact with all of the people that you talk with. So it just seems like it is so extremely natural for you. So, I mean, do you find that you have to do something to kind of, you know, bring that out of yourself or because well, I no, mean, it's curious that you said that. Cause to me, I would think that it just is natural for you. Cause you're just, you're good like that. Seriously. No, I listen. I mean, it was a revelation that I, um, you know, so when I worked in television, I'm a documentary filmmaker, uh, producer, director type, right? So I was conducting interviews all the time. And I mm -hmm. thought I was doing really good interviews. And no one ever said to me, like, hey, man, you do really good interviews. You know, because you don't hear the questions when you see my shows, right? You just hear the person talking. Right. But I was kind of like, shit, did anyone ever hear him say that before? No. Uh, when Floyd Mayweather just said about, you know, this this lawsuit or this court case, like, gee, I'm the one who got that. Why? How come nobody's giving me no? So I felt like I was doing really good interviews and 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 nobody was really acknowledging that. And. <sighs> When we started doing the podcast, it's it like really, you know, it was like when you go, if you ever go to a massage and they push the, they like, it was hitting all my pressure points because <laughs> <laughs> people were like, oh, snap, you do great interviews. Yep. And yep. I was like, a hundred percent, man. <laughs> so, so, so that was kind of like, you know, I kind of got my power. Like, I mm -hmm. feel good doing the interviews. Um, I will tell you, um, last May, we went to, or last April, April, May, we went to the Moritoglu Academy. I was hired, I was hired by the Tennis Channel to do a story about Patrick that I pitched. And I worked a podcast in at the end, and um, the guys at the Academy were great, you know, they because they liked how I interviewed Patrick. I'd read his book. I knew I knew what I was talking about. Um, I was I didn't just show up, you know. And I think that 
sometimes people just show up and, and, uh, so they basically, Patrick sat down and we did about an hour podcast. So I asked the cameraman to roll, like to, 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 to record it, you know, to, to shoot it. And for a second, I got nervous, like <laughs> I, being on the camera, like I, 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 I froze up a little bit. So it's something I maybe got to work on, um, you know, but, but yeah, no, I'm very comfortable off camera on the microphone just trying to learn like you know how how it is man like what is it like to have this talent and this skill and what's it like to lose first round six times in a row and then and then quarterfinal Australian Open what's it like to you know blow seven match points to Roger Federer uh, a month ago, you know all those things. Yeah, you know, all those things fascinate me, and um, I think that the guests they like they like being on my show, and that makes me feel good too. I haven't had any, I haven't so far. Knock on wood. Like I'm waiting for the day where I choke, but I haven't. <laughs> you know, it's bound to happen where somebody's gonna, you know. It's bound to happen, but I'm trying hard to not let that happen. Where I, you know, you know, right. where you, you just want to do good work. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, yeah. I've heard, Craig, I've heard you mention before that on your podcast, you guys interview the most interesting people in the sport. And so that kind of leads me to a certain question. Of all the people you've interviewed, because you've interviewed players and coaches and, and people that are behind the scenes, have you ever had a perception about a particular person before you had the interview, and then after having that interview, you had a newfound appreciation for this person? Well, if you listen to um, the Wim Fassett interview, that's, you know, that's Naomi's coach. Mm -hmm. You know, the Wim Fassett interview, I actually say it to him. <laughs> I said to him, I was like, you know, I had it in my mind that you were sort of this mysterious, probably not very nice guy. And he was like, well, why do you think that? And I was like, well, because you, 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 you show that you go from player to player. And that uh -huh. speaks to, that speaks to something that I don't quite understand and he the guy went from player to player to hirings to firings to pregnancies to arguments to disagreements to every, he went through every single coaching situation so he started with clysters then uh uh i'm gonna forget but as a renka hollop Kanta, Kerber, back to Azarenka. Like, it was bananas. <laughs> and he explained everything. And I was like, and at the end, he said, hey, man, what do you think of me now? And nice. I said, yeah. I, uh, I said, yeah. So, so you know, there's a t I saw a T-shirt. I saw a T-shirt that Apple Computers had. It said something like, it's hard to dislike someone when once you've learned their story. Mm, that's and, true. Um, 
and and I think that you know a big thing that I try to do is I try to I try to kind of dig deep and see if we can, you know, learn some things that helps the listener maybe understand the player or the coach or the broadcaster or the tournament director or the executive, the CEO better. Okay. So, so yeah, but we've had, you know, I've had Ian Hamilton who basically is the original head of Nike tennis signed Sampras and Agassi. Uh, you know, I had him on the show. I had Steve Flink, the, the journalist who um, is in the hall of fame. I've had him on, he just has a new book out on Sampras. He's like a, he's like a real Sampras historian. Uh, I've had him on the show. Um, I had Mark Hurd, the head of Oracle uh, who uh, passed away this past year on the show because of his involvement in tennis. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, the, the big, you know, the, the sexiest guests for me are, you know, the former world number ones. Like I love to say right. we have former <laughs> world number ones on the show. I mean, it's just nothing like that. So I've had Vlander, Kofelnikov, Courier, Davenport, uh, you know, in doubles, Mark Woodford, I've had like, you know, I've had, you know, I mean, that, that to me is like magic. I mean, I can't even contain my excitement <laughs> you know, to, have those, to have those world number ones on the show. And then, you know, we had Sophia Kennan on, we had Belinda Bencic on, we had Bianca Andrescu on. So I actually have had on the last two female Grand Slam winners. I mean, right. come on, baby. That's unbelievable. <laughs> right? You can't make that up. That's excellent. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, Craig, your your reach and your network is just, it's really incredible. And to be able to boast that is just, it's, it's yeah, you should be proud of that. You should absolutely be proud of that, man. I mean, that, like I, I said, very, of- yeah, go ahead. By the way, a lot of wins and losses, man. A lot of wins and losses. Um, and somehow, the, sure. somehow the losses hurt more than the wins sometimes, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, yeah. Craig, so. tell us this. Now, I know that uh, I think you had mentioned to us that you were actually on or at Indian Wells this past uh, past few weeks ago, right? Were you there when, yeah, when all yeah. of the news kind of broke? 100%. Yeah. So, um, so talk to us about that. I mean, when that whole thing got canceled, um, you know, what was what was sort of the sentiment of, of the folks in your network that you were around and and just uh, the overall thought process there? Well, I got on the ground. I got down there on Friday because, you know, as you guys know, you know, the week before is there's a lot of action. So. I got down there the Friday before the tournament was supposed to start on Tuesday, really. But the Oracle Challenger was going on. Right. And all the players were already starting to crunch down on Indian Wells. So I was already there. Um, I think there was already, you know, 
journalists were inquiring of the tournament, like what's, you know, what's, what's, what's the situation in the tournament was said, well, you know, the, on Saturday. So, so Saturday they announced that the ball kids were going to wear gloves and the players were going to, they were going to touch the towels and they were going to refund tickets. Tell you what, man, by Sunday night, it was a wrap. People thought that, um, it was myself included felt like an overreaction. Um, couldn't have been more wrong about it. Monday, I, uh, racket magazine, the magazine I mentioned, they actually had, uh, they had rented, uh, Dinah Shore's house and, uh, they had like, they were doing, you know, different things, different business and such. So I popped my head over there. Um, I had a quick, I had a, I had a, a, a medium conversation with Eva Maioli, who sits on the WTA board. She didn't have a feel for what was going on. Donna Vekic uh, mentioned that she hadn't heard what was happening. So, man, I'm telling you, I described it as the, it was like the tennis twilight zone. And it was, um, and it, it, I don't think any of us really understood the gravitas of the situation. Um, you know, I'm not sure I understood it until, you know, a day or two or three or four ago, maybe. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure I was um, understanding of the gravitas of the seriousness of it. I think. It's funny, too, because when I was driving down there that Friday, okay, I, 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 I was on the phone with Brad Gilbert, and he was saying, yo, this is a big, big problem. This is a big situation. He was, he was on his way to a, 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 a charity exhibition for Brian Teacher's uh, daughter, who passed away at Beverly Hills Tennis Club, okay? Right. And he was already saying, and I thought he was being a little extra nervous. And I'm telling you, from from the beginning of, of what he said to the end, he was right on the money. And he might be one of the only people I know that's been in full, official, perfect isolation. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and... Um, well, yeah, because Brad's a bit of a germ germaphobe, isn't he? I, I thought that's what I had kind of heard is that he's he's very much you know doesn't doesn't too much fool around with germs. Well, you said that. I'm I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> Keep on going, Greg. <laughs> no, no, um, no, no. But that's what I mean. So I'm just saying that it was. Oh. Um, I don't think anyone had a great feel for the seriousness of it um and then you know by the back end of that week like and the players was i stayed there till thursday and the players were practicing it was like (laughs) it was like uh like a carnival that like an amusement park that was uh abandoned but like a tennis heaven you know like the play if you look at my instagram like you know Daniil Medvedev was playing a practice match with Karen Kachanov. Donna Vekic was playing a practice match against Mukova. But 
you know, it it was um, it it it's it's like it's hard to. It was hard to understand the seriousness of the situation for someone like me. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm I'm stupid or because I was doing work. <laughs> like I was down there and all these players are there. And for me, I felt like I was doing good. And, you know, I, it was hard to realize that the world was, you know, kind of shutting down and not just the tennis world, but the world you know so um i'm taking it very serious and um everyone else should too <laughs> i don't have a lot I, I generally speaking don't have a lot of advice for people but uh that's my no, advice I think, yeah. I think what you said was well said craig i mean again take it serious folks uh, hopefully the listeners out there once you hear this uh podcast again you know, that social distancing, uh, hunkering down, stay indoors, be safe, all of that is very much applicable. So, you know, definitely listen to that. And Craig, on the flip side of that, we've also seen now that the, you know, now that uh, they've extended things, they've pushed some things out, they've canceled some things. You know, we saw, you know, recently that the uh, French Open just said, hey, we want this date, so we're about to take it. And uh, <laughs> they jumped into a particular window. What's been your, I guess, uh, uh, kind of perspective on some of the changes and the schedule that are being announced uh, as far as tournaments either being moved or just saying, hey, we're going to call it until 2021? Yeah, I think um, I think it's also tragic um, that you know all the French Open was trying to do was save you know a billion dollars, you know, multi maybe probably multi billion dollar event. Um, right, right, absolutely. Uh, it's like it's like it's like you know I guess you could wait for Vasek Pospisil and but they were just trying to save what's the biggest thing there is in France, right? Like that's right. doesn't get that much bigger, man. Uh, <laughs> three three weeks of packed hotels, three that's weeks right. of people uh, working, security, ushers, ticket takers, yep. hot dog makers, whatever you want to, you know. So they were just trying to save their event. Um, I I think. I, I heard this morning from someone that someone that's dialed in uh, a coach of a player that Wimbledon was um, going to maybe try to flex their date into those Olympic weeks, but you know, it doesn't seem here nor there at the moment. Um, everything just seems way more, you know, dire and more serious than any tennis to be played but listen man if somehow we can flatten that curve and come back up yeah. um it, i i wouldn't surprise me personally if you know all those big mixed tournaments come back up on the up on the board like boom 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 you know uh miami indian wells madrid but just 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 try to come up with some way to you know get those you know get things back into place but 
I'm probably not even the right person to. That's like a, that's almost a. Uh, you know, that's I'm I'm just sort of taking pieces of different you know people's thoughts that I I talk with. Um, right. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It, but 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 you know, like the. It, it just feels to me like, you know, there's certain tournament owners that have the wherewithal or that I think would have the wherewithal to be able to get a, get a tournament up and running lickety split. And that would be Oracle. That would be Larry Ellison at Indian Wells. That would be IMG in Miami, Steve Ross. But Hold on a second. Miami is they're going to have a football stadium. <laughs> right. Well, I'm saying how are they going to how are they going to you know what they could do is they could put it back in Key Biscayne. Oh. Right. Yep. yep. That would they be could. kind of a that would be kind of neat. Um Jan Tiriak, he owns Madrid. I mean, Jan Tiriak's a he's the richest guy in Romania. He's a billionaire. Um he doesn't play. He owns a bank. He's, he owns a bank called Banky Ontariac, man. So <laughs> I know. I swear to God. That's awesome. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if, if God, God willing and, and, and hopefully somehow this thing can get under control, I think that the ones that can will. But the other question becomes, is that it's like okay, well, Tiago Wilch, right, the Brazilian, he hasn't. Yeah, right. Yep. So what are they going to do? What are they going to do? They're going to go test. They're going to go test uh, all hundred and fifty uh, you know, hundred and fifty, two hundred and fifty players. Test all the refs all the workers everybody like how are you going to do that right yep. how all the trainers everyone that walks through the doors how are you going to test the fans like what are you are, are, are fans no longer going to be able to get interviews right see all of that is still undetermined right. so it's when 100%. we even talk about even when we talk about rescheduling tournaments there is so there's so much unknown out there. I mean, no there are thought there are thoughts that there may not be any tennis any for the tennis rest for of the, the calendar year exactly. because of all those things that you've just mentioned. You know, you don't know how that's going to play out. I know I heard earlier today that Wimbledon or um, they want to try to make the decision on their tournament in the next couple of weeks, hmm. and um, I think well, that's going to no mean choice, a lot. Right. Right. I I think that Wimbledon is trying to stay as nimble as they can because because a they can but also they can only play the tournament up until a certain t- until the weather is undesirable so right, right they only have a few weeks left anyway before it so i i didn't want to come on and and be um extremely negative about uh, a potential but you know if you, if you if you can do the math on you if you could do that you could do the math on it and um and see you know where we're at i mean this president this so-called president says you know he thinks we're going to be back in business on easter sunday i don't you know i think he's the <laughs> um 
you know, I think he's the, uh, you know, he's a, a non-essential worker to me right now. He's non-essential. Right. You shut him right down. This the stuff he says is so, um, so poor and so incorrect and so pandering and and lousy. So you know, I don't I don't believe him, and right. I believe people like the governor of. New York, Andrew Cuomo, mm -hmm. and I believe the experts that it's a big, big, serious problem. And you know, the best thing you could do is just stay clear, of people. Take what? care of yourself, right. and listen to all sixty-five episodes of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, and, and then jump over and listen to right. all what thirty-eight episodes yeah, of ours. Exactly. <laughs> so let's jump to another topic. So with all the people that you've talked with, as you know, our podcast, although we are interested in all backgrounds yes. and all types of players and, and, and ethnicities, we have a particular interest in the African-American uh, community. And we know that over the past 25 years, we've seen a big change in terms of the presence of African-Americans in the sport of tennis. I mean, obviously, Venus and Serena have done so much on the women's side, right. uh, but you've had, you know, Chanda Rubin and Zena Garrison and, and so many others. On the guys, we've had yeah. a couple, Malavia Washington, yeah. uh, James Blake, James Blake. we got Tiafo right I'm a, now. I was about to say, and I'm going to claim some of the French guys. I'm going to claim Gael. I'm going <laughs> to claim uh, Songa. So, I mean, you are definitely seeing more, you know, African-American or people of color out there on right. the tour. And I just wonder, you know, from your perspective, someone who has been around the game for so long, how have you seen the change? Um, you know, and, and also, don't, I want to just, I want to just mention, don't sleep on those, um, those Swedish brothers, the Emers. Emers. Oh, I, yep, yeah, yep, yep, them Emers, yeah. man. Emers, FAA. I mean, we got some young talent coming up. That's crazy. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's it's funny. I um, are you there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I have this very, very, very um searing memory of being in Australia in 1998 and I think I, I don't think Serena played but I have this memory of Venus played that tournament I mean she was in cornrows and in Reebok and she was a kid <laughs> and I just remember this like all white Australian crowd you know root, rooting against her all the way through and then, and then, uh, then, and then, you know, applauding politely when she won, and I j and I even remember somehow I was I don't I don't know if Andre had played on the court if it was the, the it was the center court there, but I was I was low and I remember seeing um, Oracine, and she said something like, "Man, this crowd doesn't have the right sensibilities." She said something and. It stayed with me for my whole life. You know, I was 23 or 24, and I, I just can't imagine what passive-aggressive and overt, and I just can't imagine the racism that 
they experienced basically going from tournament to tournament to tournament, year to year to year. And, you know, I think when the book's written, it must have, it must have fueled them to beat some ass because, <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, to be in it for 20 years like that um, has got to, it's got to be a lot. You know, and I've never really quite heard either of the sisters speak to it. Um, but shoot, if they came on my show, I'd like to know. Um, <laughs> you know, no, I would, I, I would, because you know, <laughs> that's really the ultimate underdog, isn't it? Right. When, well, when I... not just not just when you walk into a match but a arena or a, a tennis club from the time you're seven or eight or ten you know so i don't know man i think maybe i never even really heard richard williams speak to it um and maybe i'm wrong maybe he has but you know maybe well, that's why he didn't have them play juniors because he well, just thought hey, i can get them i can get them so good myself and then we could just go Let's, if we're going to do it, let's go make some money and let's just go see how if we can turn. You know, they called it the Williams Tennis Association for a long time, man, because right. they ran the show. I mean, they they really run the show. They do, you know, they do, they do what they want. They get the courts they want. They, you know, for a long time. And, um, you know, I just don't know what to say about I just don't know what to say about it. I think that, um, I think I, I'd like to think that. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, I was I was in the arena to see Coco Golf when she played Sophia Kennan for the first time, and maybe Melbourne even changed. You know, maybe Melbourne's changed in twenty years, but I didn't feel. Like I felt watching, you know, a black player and the four black people in her box on that court. Do you see what I'm saying? I didn't. I didn't feel the same way. I felt like I felt it was different. Well, than, than, than in, than in 1998. Okay, that's a long time ago now. But well, Craig, that's you know. why I would say to you that. Um, that's why we call them pioneers, yep. right? Because if it wasn't for Venus and Serena, Coco would have probably experienced something like that. I, I And I definitely remind you of the whole Indian Wells oh, yeah. situation because oh, yeah. I know personally, after that situation happened, I didn't attend Indian Wells for many years yep. after that. And I know Richard... And you talk about, you know, not hearing about them being really outspoken about those type of situations. Well, they were very outspoken about what happened in Indian Wells. Venus was, Serena was, and Richard were. And it was really frustrating to hear that the response to them was like, oh, well, okay, well, you know, just kind of get over it and come back next year, right? There, I thought there was a lot of insensitivity to what happened. And, you know, they were being asked just to kind of, you know, deal get with over it. it. Yeah, but like you said, hey, by the way, I agree. I I agree a hundred percent. Guess what? That's how they dealt with it. They didn't. Sh they didn't show. 
Exactly. Exactly. They knew they had the clout at that time because remember, Indian Wells was a mandatory uh, tournament, and the WTA made an exception for them and said, "Well, if they didn't play, they at least had to do some sort of promotion for the tour." So Venus and Serena, for many years, just used that as an opportunity to be in LA, right, back home, and they did a few things there, but. You know, when they came back and said, we are not playing because we fear for our safety. And remember, this is already after Monica Sellis right. had had her thing happen. Right. So I don't think the WTA was going to press them on that, especially when they brought the safety piece back up. So, um, yeah. yeah. No, I just, um, yeah, no, I, 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 like I said, I can't imagine what it must have been like. I just interviewed Charlie Passarell, mm-hmm. who um, was a close friend of uh, Arthur Ashe. And, you know, I tried to kind of take him into that deep water, but, you know, sometimes when you're doing the interviews, it's it's not always the easiest thing to go into the complete darkness. So, you know, I, I, I asked him if, you know, he had, you know, been around Arthur when he experienced overt racism and such. And he, he was like, yes, I did. And, and he said often that Arthur didn't ever say anything and, you know, that he wished he had. And Arthur um, handled a lot of, adversity with you know uh, a, 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 a certain class that you know I guess really defined him um, I would recommend that interview um, to you know to, I think he, you know Charlie Charlie talked about Arthur a lot those guys were friends from the time they were juniors they went to UCLA together and they were you know really very close best friends uh, for a very long time. And uh, that's kind of an interesting interview. I talked to James Blake. Um, you know, he seemed to somehow, he seems to have somehow floated through until, of course, he was, you know, muckled to the ground <laughs> based on mistaken yeah. identity. Yep. By, uh, by an undercover cop who thought he was like a, a you know, a, 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 like a money launderer or some kind of a, like international felon. And um, he had, he was wearing his final eight club U.S. Open badge, his, his credential, and the guy just cuffed him and stuffed him, you know, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and uh and James, to his credit, said, "Listen, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sue you, but you gotta fire this officer, and you gotta." I forgot exactly what he said, but I try to, I try to, I try to, you know, I try to address those things. Um, I think there's probably some room for improvement on my part, but I try to get down those roads. I think that, you know. You know, I, uh, you know, the, you know, there's Donald Young and there's Sloan and there's, um, 
You know, there Taylor was Alexandra Stevenson. Listen, Taylor Townsend, I'm dying to get her on my show. Um, <laughs> she's just a, she's a funky chick. She's a great player. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to kind of like bark her down on, on social media to see if she, you know, say, hey, listen, I got a cool show. You know, let's get on the microphone or have a listen and tell me what you think. But I haven't really been able to make that happen yet. She's coached by long time by Donald Young's father. Right. And yep. um, and the uh, Donald <laughs> Young is nowhere, man. I mean, he seems like he's uh, just finished. I, I don't know what happened to him. Um I think, Craig, we're going to have to have a competition to see who can get Taylor Townsend on their show first. Because we, we've been, we actually saw Taylor at the Oracle uh, Challenger in Newport. Uh, we were yeah. at her matches at the U.S. Yeah. Open. We've been strong supporters of her. We took a picture with yeah. her a couple months yeah. ago. So so we're with yeah. you. We, we, we love Taylor Townsend. Uh, we feel that she is immensely talented. I mean, just great hands she has a great game it's just a matter of when all of that's going to come together but yeah we're gonna to have to have a little competition to see which of us can finally get taylor townsend oh no man listen I defer, I defer to you and then give her my number listen but you know i tried to she had such a great run at the u.s open yeah and, oh, yeah. and you guys may or may not know this but sergio tacchini sponsors my show um, oh yeah! Oh yeah! Mm -hmm. And um, I actually was trying to get Takini because she was she was making that run. She beat Simona Hollow. Yeah, right. we were there. We were there. <laughs> she was money in the bank, and I was like, "Yo, put 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 clothes, put the Takini on this girl." That's right. And, That's right. And be it, and trailblaze it because you know. She's, you know, she's, she has a different body type. She's a, she's the real deal player. Um, you know, she's cute. She's got a good style and um, she'll, she could do some, she could move the needle on the brand. And um, they just weren't organized for that at the time. But I was, I'm a big fan. I'd like to see her, you know, if, when, and if we get the tennis back, I'd love to see her play the kind of single she played at the u.s open a little oh, bit oh yeah well, four Craig, five matches, i think right so listen yeah. if you're winning four matches you're basically winning tournaments and you know i you know i think she's got a good she has a good personality and, and i love the way she volleys um her volleys are just stone cold man she, well, she Craig, is such is a player yeah, yeah, this is something that Bryce and I continuously talk about on our podcast is Taylor's game. And honestly, I, we know that she ain't got the coins, but my God, if she could get with like a Martina Navratilova and just, oh my goodness, to me, that pairing would be, for me and Bryce, that would just be glorious. Because to me, you mean, you mean I think that... Martina I'm sorry? You mean to have Martina coach her? Absolutely. To bring oh, that level of, 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 because again, Martina had that net game. She could teach her how to transition. 
And like I said, not trying to clown, but you know Martina was the trailblazer as it relates to, you know, kind of converting herself and being the, the athlete that you need to be in order to deliver a strong serve and volley game. I believe she can bring so many great things to Taylor. I, like I said, no, she doesn't have the coins, but my goodness, that would be just a glorious partnership if it could happen. I would... Um... I need to think about what you. I would. I need to think about that. <laughs> I like that. Okay. I'm not like ready it. to. I'm not ready to jump on that. Uh, I'm <laughs> Who not would ready you to jump pair her with? That. Who would you pair her with if she's not I'm with uh, I, I, Donald, I, 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 Donald I need, Young? I need to think about it. I need to think about it. All right. Because I think something we all agree on is that uh, the current coach uh, is probably not helping her leverage all of her abilities. That's Very Donald Young's father. Yes. Yeah, I don't know enough about him either. Um, it's a great accomplishment to have players, you know, get into the top 100, win tournaments, make a living playing. Um, but, you know, I, I tell you what, man, seeing Donald with his mother when he was 32 – you know, the mother's sitting on the side of the court with, like, a sleeping bag over her legs, and it's just, like, just didn't seem like a good look to me. Aww. Like, I'm, if, if I'm if I'm saying, if I'm, if I'm the opponent, I'm not losing to nobody with his mother sitting on the side of the court. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm gonna try to beat this guy's ass. Craig got to your mom step on the next. Right? Go talk, to you, talk, go talk to your mommy after the set, after I whip you. You know what I mean? That was like a little weird for me. So I don't know. Um, Ooh, yeah, no. Uh, I wasn't. I, I didn't really like that look. Um, but you know, you know, and then Sloan got way off track. Um, Coco Golf is the real thing. Yes. Um, I think though that she's. Um, I mean, I I think that she's she's got she's so good, but um, a lot can happen from fifteen to nineteen. So, right. you know, I, I I did feel like, you know. She's almost in like like at the tournament when she played Kennan, she made a run. She beat Osaka. Osaka kind of choked. Um, yep. And you know, Osaka got like super anxious and tight. Um, if you remember, Osaka whipped whipped her at the U.S. Open in that big match, and then uh, Naomi made that class move where she had uh, Coco address the crowd, but. When she came back six months later, she felt terrible pressure, and she 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 just um, she really lost that match to Coco. But I just feel like I feel like player box management and player entourages um, can 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 make a big difference in the outcome of matches. And I talked about it with Lindsay Davenport and I talked about it 
I've been asking people, we do a thing in the show called the 10 ball scramble where I, it's a word association. And I've been asking them to say big entourage or lean and mean. Yep. And, and I think that, you know, when you got like 16 knuckleheads in the box, <laughs> jumping up and down every point, it, 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 it's too much, too much fist pumping, too much, too much. Like, there's just a few times in a match where you gotta, you can pull your player through. And I think that, I think that they're still figuring it all out. You know, she's become a big star very quick right. and, and we'll see, but I mean, Hey, listen, she already won a pro tournament, man. She oh, lost, yeah. she lost in qualifying. She got the lucky loser spot. She won the tournament. There's and a lot of there's a lot of players, yeah, in Lynn's Austria. There's a lot of players that have never won a tournament, man, that are great players. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, she already won a tournament. Right. Well, yeah, yeah she, seems, she seems, like, really smart and kind of quirky, and she's got a nice personality. Uh, Naomi Osaka, same thing. She seems like she's smart, and she has a nice personality, and she's kind of finding her – She's kind of finding her personality, and um, mm -hmm. I think that's cool to see. Um, that is, yeah. You know, she, I, sorry, I, I wanted to go back to Venus and Serena for just a quick second. Sure. Um, when we were talking to you, I think last week or earlier this week, you were mentioning something about you knew a little bit of information about the King Richard film on Richard Williams that was being she produced. Was I do. I, I know some things that I can share with you and your listeners. Um, first of all, the guy who wrote the movie, his name is Zach Balin, and he uh, is the husband of a, a young woman who I worked with and I think I may have even hired at VH1 a long, long time ago, a girl named Kate Sussman. Anyway, Zach Balin wrote this script, and the script got on like this a list here in Hollywood that it got attention and it ended up becoming like one of the biggest sales of the year last year. It was like a seven figure sale for the script. Uh, wow. Producer of the script is a guy named uh, oh man, his name is Tim White and I believe he played tennis at like Williams or Smith College or something. I haven't seen him play, but I heard he's a really good player. I know he's a really good player, actually. And those are good signs, man, because when the producer is a good player, you like to think that the ten, like, you know, usually sports movies, like the action looks terrible, right? It's all corny. And <laughs> it never looks good. It looks bad. And I think that that's good. I know that, you know, when they, when they got Will Smith um, to play Richard, that was a big deal, obviously. Um, right. The, the whole, the whole situation is being looked at as like an award film. Okay. So the DP, the director of photography is one of the baddest. There is a cat named Robert Elswit. Huh. And 
he um man i believe he's an oscar winner he's bad to the bone he's one of the most official there is um i know that uh i know that you know their production is down right so i can tell you all that um and you you have to think that they've you know that the show must go on at some point so hopefully you know that 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 production can get back up and running but i i know that that's like a that's like a real deal award season film so i guess we'll see what happens yeah i tell you what i i remember when they announced that will smith was going to play richard and it, it's funny because Yes, he brings a huge star power right. to the movie, right? Um, but something that is, you know, often kind of like in the African-American culture, something yep. that we, we deal with is there's this concern with shade and yep. color. And, yep. and if, as we all know, Richard Williams is a very dark-skinned mm -hmm. uh, African-American and Will Smith is not. Right. Now, of course... You know, in Hollywood, you can do whatever with makeup or whatever. But I do know that there were some voices out of the, the Black community that was kind of like, here we have this very successful dark African-American male who is going to be potentially portrayed uh, by this much lighter-skinned African-American male. And there's always been kind of this concern about, um, you know, Light, light-skinned blacks or light-skinned African-Americans um, are more acceptable in Hollywood and, and that kind of thing. So uh, I hope that doesn't end up being an issue because Will Smith is a great actor right. and, and I think he'll bring a lot to the role. But I definitely remember hearing that when that announcement was first well, made. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, Bryce, and with you, Craig. When I heard that Will was playing it, that's exactly what went through my head as well. Because, again, I think back to things like, you know, you look at X-Men and you see how uh, how Storm was Holly Berry. Uh, I just feel like that's like a Grace horrible, Jones. Man. I mean, it's like uh -huh. you you have your idea in your head of, of the complexion and person that you would see in that particular role. I would think like a Richard Williams would be like a uh, Idris, Idris Elba. Elba. Idris right. Elba, yeah. Exactly, that's right. You know, because again, a darker, you know, African-American man, you know, just, you would just immediately would be like, okay, yeah, that fits. But again, uh, with Hollywood... I could, let me just... Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead, Craig. Let me tell you, um, I, uh, one of my passwords that I use is Stringer Bell, so... <laughs> I'm a big Idris Elba fan, man. I love oh, there it. you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so one of my passwords is Trigger Bell. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I understand. Um, I, I shouldn't say I understand. I, I, I've heard and I've heard that stuff. Um, I've heard those sentiments. And that's definitely out of my pay grade. Or my shade grade, or whatever you want to say. But what I what I would say is is that um, so often tennis movies stink, and you know there's only only in the re only in the last couple of years has there ever been a, there was for the longest time there was never a good tennis movie, right? And then that Borg McEnroe movie I think is quite good. Mm -hmm. And the Billie Jean King movie, I thought was quite good. 
But generally speaking, there had never even been another good tennis movie. So, um, you know, listen, I don't bet against Will Smith. I don't bet against Zach Balin. I don't get the, I mean, the guy, I, I think that I don't bet against Robert Elswit. You know, I think that if, you know, if this movie gets made now that, you know, or when this movie gets made, I think it's probably got a chance to be quite good. And, um, you know, I know Venus and Serena and the family, you know, signed off on it as well. And, um, that must mean the script must be pretty, pretty, pretty damn oh. good too. Right. So, yeah, we're like definitely I said, I, here for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I think the one thing I do want to say about Venus and Serena is, you know, if this season gets shut down, um, you know, do we even see them again? <laughs> You know, or it's just like, I mean, it seemed like Venus was, you know, was on her way to shutting it down. Right. Um, and Serena, it, it it's felt to me for a long time that she's just trying to take one last shot at it, one last shot at it. And maybe if she won the, if she won a slam, and she decides she was like still playing really well. She would continue for like a like a farewell lap. But I just wonder if you know there's these players that are in their late thirties. You know, Venus is obviously quite old. I think that that's going to be one of the you know maybe like sort of hey, listen. It's all sad, right? Yeah. Like there's way the the situation is more sad than players end of their careers but but yeah i think that's going to be a sad thing if you know they can't take a proper bow you know right it's definitely a a consideration and i think the one thing to kind of take a an alternate look at that we know how much the olympics mean to the williams sisters right right and isaac and i had discussed several times that we didn't think, you know, Venus was going to make the Olympic squad for this year. But with this, you know, maybe additional time, mm-hmm. if she comes back and plays really well, she could potentially get her ranking up enough to make the team for doubles. So um, that could be a perspective that they have. I know Serena really wants to try to get to 25. Correct. And, uh, but I know she's going to stay through at least through the, um, through the Olympics. So where, where I'm in the same boat as you, I was thinking Venus was probably, if the Olympics happened this year, 2020 was probably going to be her last year. But I think this may extend her mm-hmm. for a year. Mm-hmm. Just might. You know. So, Craig, we want to really thank you for this. This has been an amazing... We have just been sitting here talking <laughs> and laughing and, and, and having a great time. And, and, you know, it's been just a pleasure. And I know our, our audience... Uh, this has been a real treat for them. Any final words that you'd like to share about either your life or your experience or the, the tennis community or podcasting or? No, listen, man, I want to tell everybody that first and foremost, uh, you can find my show at underreviewtennis.com. And if you, if you type in under review tennis podcast, you can 
access it anywhere you get a podcast. But you got to, it's key that you write in tennis. There's other knuckleheads that have under review. <laughs> so you got to write in under review tennis and then it comes up. And then, as I just told you, you know, we rock with Takini and, um, you know, it may not, you know, if anybody needs any uh, retail therapy, um, <laughs> I've got a code that I'll share with you. If you type into, if you go to SergioTakini.com and you type in, in all capitals, under, underscore, review, and the number 30, you get 30% off anything you buy. And they just. Oh, wow. Very yeah, nice. and their stuff is and their stuff is fly, and you could buy the McEnroe jacket, so you could buy some new stuff. You could buy the, you could buy some hats. You could buy the wristbands, um, uh, and that's it, man. There's my shows. You know, you mentioned in the beginning that I I mentioned to you guys that they're evergreen. Basically, we don't sit down on a current event so long that a listener would be like, oh, that's so old. I don't want to listen to this. We, we, go, we do these deep dives. I do a five-set format where we talk about, we call it the off-the-court report. We see what they're up to kind of off-the-court. It's on the court, you know, we try to talk about sort of the current event or what's going on on the court. And then the third set of our show, we talk about the player's career or the guest's career. The fourth set, we do what I call the 10-ball scramble. It's a word association, okay? And then the last set of our show, we call it the, the king or the queen of the court. If they could make a change in the sport, what would it be? And we get a lot of different answers, and uh, people seem to like the format. We keep it moving. But uh, that's it, man. Uh, listen to my show. Buy yourself some tikini. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> and let's talk again anytime, man. I enjoyed myself. Absolutely. And listeners, if you haven't listened to this podcast, please go out there and take a listen. The, the episodes are, are really good. And Craig, as soon as we get from underneath this kind of stay-at-home <laughs> thing, yeah. you know, Isaac and I will would love to come up and meet you for lunch or dinner one day and, and, and just uh, continue the conversation. Now we're talking, man. Finally. I mean, <laughs> exactly. you got a deal. Yes, All right. Well, Guys, thank, uh, you. To, thank you so much, Craig. And to our listeners, uh, we will continue to just try to bring you some new and exciting content while the professional tennis tour is on hiatus. Uh, we, we have a couple things in the works right now, so we hope to uh, uh, get some of those things out to you very soon. So hopefully you have enjoyed this episode with Mr. Craig Shapiro. We're going to take this opportunity to sign off. This is your boy, Bryce. And this is your boy, Isaac. And we are Brothers on Tennis. Have a great week, everyone.